Welcome to the teaching ministry of Calvary Port St. Lucie. Let's join lead pastor Mike Wiggins with the message, Faltering Faith. Jesus' fame, his popularity is at an all-time high. And it, the, 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 the main reason for that is because of his mighty miracles that he's been performing. And so stories of all these miracles have been circulating far and wide, and the stories have reached the ears of both common people and noble people. And so common people like the farmers and the fishermen who live up around the Sea of Galilee, they've heard about the stories of Jesus, the miracle man, and noble people as well have heard these same stories. Yes, the stories of Jesus in our Bibles have finally reached the ears of Herod Antipas. And so that's where we're gonna pick it up today. In Mark chapter six, verse 14, it says that King Herod heard of it. Okay, what does it mean in the context? Well, it's where we left off last week with the ministry of Jesus, the powerful ministry of Jesus in Galilee, and not only his ministry, but if you remember at the end of the message last week, which is verses seven through 13, Jesus sent out his apostles two by two to all these different towns around Galilee and he empowered them to do miracles. And so Jesus is doing miracles. The 12 apostles are doing miracles. They're sharing the good news in the jurisdiction of Herod Antipas. And he hears of it. And it says in verse 14 that Jesus' name had become what? Known. Okay, and so Herod hears about Jesus. If you're brand new to the Bible, you need to know that Herod is not a man's first name. Herod is a title that's given to a group of men who ruled in and around Palestine for over 100 years. And so the Herods descended from Esau. If you remember in your Old Testament, you got Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons. They become the leaders of the 12 tribes of what? Israel, God's chosen people. Well, Jacob had a brother. Jacob was accepted. Esau was rejected. And so Esau became the father of the Edomites, the ancient bitter enemies of Israel. And so the Herods, remember that's a title, they descended from Esau, from the Edomites, and they made up what's known as the Herodian dynasty, a dynasty that was appointed by the Roman Empire. And so the first Herod was Herod the Great. Herod the Great ruled from AD, I'm sorry, uh, 37 BC until 4 BC. Herod the Great, the great architect. Um, Herod was the one, Herod the Great was the one who gave this amazing facelift to the Jewish temple there in Jerusalem, later destroyed by the Romans in AD 70. Herod the Great was a genius when it came to building buildings and rebuilding buildings that were already made. He also um, uh, built Masada. Uh, if you go with us to Israel, that's one of my favorite spots. We'll go down to the western shore of the, of the Dead Sea. We go to um, Masada, which was a stronghold of the Jews. 
um, there at the bitter end when the Romans were coming to uh, kill them. Herod the Great is the one that built this amazing palace in Caesarea um, there that extended out into the Mediterranean Sea. And so we'll go and archeologists have dug all this stuff up. And so we'll go and we'll visit places like that um, as well. So great builder, but also he was the infamous madman. He was the guy, if you remember from the Christmas story, who, who, who killed all of the little baby boys in and around Bethlehem, two years old and younger, trying to destroy the baby Jesus. Now, Herod the Great in 4 BC, he died. And what did he do? Well, his kingdom was divided up and was given to his three sons. And by the way, he had 10 wives and lots of kids, but his kingdom was divided and given to three of his sons, Archelaus, Philip, and Antipas. And so if you look at the map from the first century AD, does everybody see the white area? Yes or no, do you see it? Okay, and so that's Archelaus, Herod Archelaus, one of Herod the Great's sons, and he ruled in that area, um, Judea, and Samaria, so that's where we'll call him Archie. That's where he ruled. And then you got uh, Philip. And Philip, on the top right-hand side of your screen, Herod Philip, he ruled over Eturia and Trachonitis. Okay, so that's another son of Herod the Great. But then you come to the area of Galilee and Perea. Do you guys see the gray areas on the map, yes or no? Okay, and so Galilee and Perea, that was ruled over by Herod Antipas. And so when Mark says in chapter six, verse 14, that Herod heard of it or heard about Jesus, he was talking about Herod Antipas, the son of Herod the Great, who ruled over Galilee and Perea from 4 BC, that's when his dad died, all the way until he was banished in AD 39. And so news about Jesus, news about the apostles, news about Jesus' ministry, the miracles, reached the ears of this Herod. He heard about Jesus. But who was Jesus? Ladies and gentlemen, just like there's lots of opinions today about who Jesus was, there were lots of opinions 2,000 years ago about who Jesus was. And so we pick it up now in the second part of verse 14. Some said, this is concerning Jesus, some said that he was John the Baptist, okay? So John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. And that is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, no, no, he's Elijah. And others said, he's a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. So everybody had an opinion. It's interesting to me that some of the people thought that Jesus, the miracle man from Galilee, was John the Baptist, alive from the dead. And so I saw 60% of your hands go up, those of you who have been with us since chapter one. And so you remember in chapter one, John the Baptist, the man of God, greatest prophet who ever lived. And there he is, living in the Judean wilderness, wearing a camel's coat. He's eating grasshoppers dipped in wild honey and he's introducing Israel to their Messiah. John was not the Messiah. 
And the reason I'm emphasizing that is because 2,000 years ago, a lot of people thought Jesus was John the Baptist risen from the dead. John was not the Messiah. He was the forerunner of the Messiah. In other words, John was not Jesus. He was the forerunner of Jesus, and he introduced Jesus Messiah to Israel, how? By preaching to thousands of people to repent of their sins and be baptized in the Jordan River. And so John the Baptist, when he was alive, he clearly said in, in the Gospel of John, chapter one, verse 20, he clearly said this. He said, I am not the Messiah. I don't know how much clearer you can get, but the guy dies and now Jesus is doing miracles and people are saying, it's John the Baptist alive from the dead. And that was the opinion of the politician of the day, Herod Antipas. We get that from verse 16. Please look at verse 16. It says that when Herod heard of it, Jesus and his ministry, he said, John whom I beheaded has been raised. We're gonna look a little while about the beheading of John the Baptist, but you need to know that Herod Antipas did it and ever since he did that, ever since he murdered John the Baptist, the guy has suffered with a guilty conscience. And so nightmares, thoughts about John the Baptist since he murdered him have just followed Herod Antipas wherever he goes. So much so that when he hears about Jesus and his mighty miracles, he concludes, oh no, John the Baptist whom I beheaded. He's alive again, and he's more powerful than ever. So what we're gonna do now is we're gonna read about the events leading up to the beheading of John the Baptist, okay? So everybody, please look at verse 17. We're just working our way through this passage. It says, for it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison. Why? For the sake of, who's that? Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. Okay, that's not Philip who ruled over, I showed you a little while the map, ruled over Trachonitis and um, Eturia. That's not, that's not the same Philip. Again, Herod the Great has 10 wives, lots of kids, and this Philip was just like a, a, a business, he was a private citizen, he was a businessman who lived in Rome, but he was the son of Herod the Great and he was the half-brother of Herod Antipas. And so Herod, who had, this is Antipas, verse 17, who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, why? Um, well, Herodias was his brother Philip's wife because he had married her. Herod, Antipas, had married Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. Verse 18, for John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And so months prior to where we are in the Gospel of Mark, months prior, um, Herod Antipas takes John the Baptist and he puts him in prison. He does that because, here's what happened. John the Baptist, the man of God, called out the politician for his sin. John the Baptist, the man of God, spoke out publicly that Herod had an unlawful marriage with Herodias. Here's how it all went down. One day Herod Antipas decides to go to Rome 
and spend some time with his half-brother, his wealthy half-brother, Philip. Philip is married to Herodias. Antipas comes and visits their home. While he's in their home, he falls in love with his brother's wife. And by the way, I'll say he didn't fall in love with his brother's wife, he fell in lust with his brother's wife. And this joker, you know what he did? He seduced his own brother's wife and he talked her into leaving her husband and marrying him. And you know what Herodias did? She said, okay. And the next thing you know, she's on the phone. Hey, Antipas, I'm coming to Galilee to move in. And she left her husband. Now, there's a lot of disturbing things about this whole story. And, and by the way, I could go on for an hour giving you the history and I gotta kinda weed it all out and share what's pertinent for our Bible study. But there's a number of disturbing things about this story. The first disturbing thing is that Philip was Herodias's uncle. So initially, she married her uncle. And I don't know about you, but that's gross, <laughs> right? Okay, the second thing that's disturbing about all this is that Antipas was also Herodias's uncle. So she went from uncle to uncle. And I don't know about you, but that's even more gross. <laughs> the third thing that's very disturbing about this whole story is that Herod Antipas had to divorce his wife, who by the way was the daughter of a king of Arabia, and he'll pay for that later, we'll find out at the very end of the message. But he divorced his wife so that he could marry his half-brother's wife, Herodias. It's all messed up. And when John the Baptist <laughs> hears about the unlawful marriage that took place between Herod and Herodias, let me ask you this question. How do you think a guy who eats grasshoppers and calls people to repent, how do you think he responded? He called him out. Let's read it again in verse 18. It says, for John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And so that phrase, had been saying, means that John repeatedly said to Herod, Antipas, he repeatedly said to the politician, you can't do this. Herod, I know you're an Edomite, but you're ruling over Israel. And the God of Israel says in Exodus chapter 20, verse 14, you shall not commit adultery. And ladies and gentlemen, adultery is just as wrong today in 2018 as it was in 32 AD, Mark 6, and 1500 BC when Moses came down Mount Sinai with the Ten Commandments. Adultery's wrong. It's sinful, it breaks up families, it kills kids, it's not right. And if you're here today and you've got some eyes for some man's other wife or you're trying to lure her in or seduce, shame on you, stop it, don't do that. It's not right. And then I, I believe too that John the Baptist not only um, shared about the 10 commandments and, and don't commit adultery, Herod knew it by the way, Everybody knew the Ten Commandments. But I'm sure he also shared Leviticus 18, 16 with Herod, which says, and I quote, you shall not uncover the nakedness of your brother's wife, 
right there in the book. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your brother's wife. It is your brother's nakedness. And I submit to you 2,000 years later that it's not just wrong to uncover the nakedness of your biological brother's wife, church family, it's wrong to uncover the nakedness of your spiritual brother's wife. Just don't do it. And this guy's a man of God, and he calls out the politician publicly over and over. Now, how do you think Herodias responded when she heard that she got called out? She blew a gasket. She was so angry. And she's like, Antipas, yes, dear. How dare John the Baptist call us out publicly for our marriage? Yes, dear. Put him in prison. Yes, dear. Right, can you see this whole thing going on? Did Jezebel of the New Testament pulling her husband around by his nose, telling him what to do? Yes, dear, yes, dear. And so what does he do? He throws John into prison. Now, according to Josephus, the first century Jewish historian, John was locked up in the Machiris Fortress. Okay, and so if you go with us to Israel, we'll take you to the Israel side. We're not gonna go over to Jordan, but you can see on the map that the Machiris Fortress was located just east of the Dead Sea. Back then, it was the region of Perea. You remember Herod Antipas ruled over Galilee and Perea. Today, that's modern-day Jordan. And so what Herod the Great did, this is Herod Antipas' daddy, he was a great architect, and so what he did is he went and found this old broken-down fortress on a mountain, and he rebuilt it to look something like this. And so what, what you have here is you have an archeological simulation of the Machiris Fortress. By the way, yes, archeologists went and they dug in the ground and yes, they found the fortress. Do, do you guys understand that one of the reasons that we know this book is true is because it has hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of archeological evidence that backs up what's written in it? You guys realize that? Do you know how much archeological evidence the Book of Mormon has to support the Book of Mormon? Big fat zero. You know why? Because the Book of Mormon is a bunch of fables. This is truth. This is God's word. And so what did Herod the Great do? He, he put a big facelift on this Machiris fortress, and it served two purposes. Number one, it served as a military outpost. And so from 37 BC to 4 BC, Herod the Great ruling, and so he didn't want his kingdom to be invaded by Eastern armies, and so he rebuilds the Machiris fortress. But not only that, it was also the second purpose of this fortress is that it was a big, beautiful palace, a palatial palace. Josephus, again, the historian, said uh, concerning the palace that it was, quote, breathtaking in size and beauty. And so somewhere in the Machiris Fortress was a dungeon. And so Herod Antipas took John the Baptist for calling him out for his sin, and he threw him in a dungeon somewhere in there. And that's where John the Baptist sat for months. And when I, when I go to Israel, 
and I look across the Dead Sea into the Jordan, I think about John the Baptist and how hard it must have been because he's an innocent man, he shouldn't be in jail, but that's what you do sometimes when you speak the truth. And so it says now in verse 19, and Herodias had a grudge against him, against John the Baptist, and she wanted to put him to death, but she could not, for Herod feared John. I think that's interesting. He respected John. Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man. And so Herod, the politician, knew that John the Baptist was the real deal. He knew that he was a righteous and holy man. And by the way, in America, this is what we need. We need more pastors in America who are the real deal, and they're righteous and holy men, and they live the same way privately that they do publicly, maybe then the respect that the world has for the church wouldn't be down in the gutter, maybe then people would start respecting us again. <laughs> Herod respected John the Baptist. And so what did he do? He kept him safe. And then the end of verse 20 says that when he heard John the Baptist, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. And so Herod was willing to put John in prison, but he was not willing to kill him because he knew he was the real deal. Now here's what's very interesting to me though. It says that Herod Antipas would hear John. Are you following me? He liked to listen to John the Baptist. Now it says that when he heard him, he was greatly perplexed. That's what it says, in my ESV Bible at least. And so I believe that when Herod heard John talk about God, he was greatly perplexed. In other words, he had this inner turmoil. Why? Because he had this guilt that he was wrestling with. But it goes on to say in the same verse, at the end of verse 20, that he heard him gladly. And so why, why in the world, even though this man of God's message was pricking his conscience, why would Herod the Great so wanna hear him gladly? Well, the only thing I can come up with is that John the Baptist was a fascinating speaker. And so, interesting dynamic here. Now what we're gonna do is we're gonna switch gears and we're gonna apply this now to our lives. And then we're gonna finish the story. What you need to know, Mark doesn't tell us this, but Matthew's gospel does, that when John was sitting in the Machiris Fortress, when he was in, dun in the dungeon, that he experienced a crisis of faith. When difficulty, listen to this, unexpected difficulty smacked John right in the face, his faith began to falter. And so hold your place in Mark 6. Go back down, please, to Matthew chapter 11. We're gonna look at this. So Matthew chapter 11, starting in verse one. It says, when Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, that he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. Verse two. Now when John, that's John the Baptist, heard in, what's the word? Prison, okay, he's in the Machiris Fortress, in the dungeon. When John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, 
he sent word by his disciples and said to him, said to Jesus, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? And so at this point in Matthew's gospel, it's estimated that John the Baptist has been in prison for 10 months and it's wearing on him. And so when Luke's gospel says it's two of his friends or his disciples, so when two of his friends come to visit him in prison, John the Baptist says to his two friends, hey guys, I want you to go ask Jesus, are you really the Messiah or should we be looking for another? And I've been reading that verse for years and I still think, wow. John's having a crisis of faith. Unexpected difficulties pounding on him and his faith is beginning to falter and he's beginning to question whether or not Jesus is really the Messiah. Now, if you're here this, this afternoon and you say, well, I would never allow my faith to falter. Let me just say, be careful, because if it can happen to John the Baptist, it can happen to anybody. So don't think you're so super spiritual that you're above all this. Get, I mean, hey, the, our enemy, like a roaring lion, prowls around seeking whom he may devour. And so what we wanna do is we want to figure out how to make sure our faith does not falter. But before we do that, I wanna, I wanna explain to you why John is having a crisis of faith. Okay, so if you're with me, say amen. amen. Okay, don't miss this right here. John's experiencing a crisis of faith because of unfulfilled expectations. Okay, so John the Baptist, like every good Jew in the first century, he believed that when the Messiah came, the Messiah would fulfill the messianic prophecies in the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures, that he would come, that he would defeat Israel's enemies, that he would set up his kingdom, that he would rule and reign from Jerusalem over the world. That's what John the Baptist was expecting from Jesus. Now, we have it made in 2018 because we know that those messianic, and they're there, Jesus will one day come. He will defeat Israel's enemies. He will rule over the world from Jerusalem, literally. It's there, but we, have, we got it made because we know, I'll ask you the question, do those prophecies per pertain to his first coming or his second coming? His second coming. John the Baptist didn't know that. Jews in the first century didn't know there was a first coming and a second coming. And so he's sitting in, in the dungeon, right? And he's thinking, man, any day now, Jesus is gonna gather the armies of Israel and they're gonna defeat the Romans and their puppets, the Herodian dynasty, and they're gonna come kick down this door and they're gonna set me free. Any day now. But days turned into weeks and weeks turned into months and months turned into more months and nothing's happening and you have unfulfilled expectations. And John's having a crisis of faith. And I personally believe because it's at the Machiris Fortress, which had two um, purposes, which I've already covered, military outpost, palatial palace. Military outpost has a dungeon, palatial palace where they partied. And so I believe that John the Baptist is sitting in, dun in the dungeon and he can hear the music. He can hear Herod and Herodias dancing the night away. 
And he's, I'm wondering if he's thinking, man, I've been living for God my whole life and they live for themselves. I, 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 live, I, I live for Yahweh, the God of Israel. They live for pleasure. And yet I'm suffering and they're partying. And he has a crisis of faith. His faith falters because God did not fulfill John's expectations. And so your next point, if you're taking notes, is just a question to you. And that is, and by the way, to me too. Can you guys look at me for a second? Every time I do this, there's one finger pointing at you and there's three point back at me. And I realize that I, can, I could have a, a, a stumbling block in my life and my faith could falter. So I'm preaching to you and me, okay? And so here's the question for all y'all. When God doesn't fulfill our expectations, will we allow our faith to falter? When our week is filled with problems, ever had a week like that? Did someone say no? I wanna move in with you, next door to you. When people disappoint us, ever happened to you? Don't name names. When financial blessings don't come. When a significant relationship ends. When something we cherish is taken away from us. When our health deteriorates. When our loved one's health deteriorates. When our loved one dies. The question is, are we gonna allow our faith to falter or are we gonna do whatever we need to do to make sure our faith stays vibrant and strong by the grace of God? And so John, I'm sorry, Jesus loved John the Baptist and he, he hurt for him. He wanted to strengthen John's faith. And so when the two guys came saying, are you really the Messiah or should we look for somebody else? John the Baptist wants to know. Jesus has a message for John in prison. And this is what Jesus says in verse four of Matthew chapter 11. Jesus says, go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear and the dead are raised up and the poor have good news preached to them. And, and by the way, tell John this, blessed is the one who is not offended by me. That's a little bit of an ouch there. In other words, the word offended means stumbled. In other words, blessed is the man or woman whose faith does not falter. And so what should we do if our faith begins to falter? I wanna help you out this morning and I wanna give you four things to remember, okay? So if you're taking notes, this is where it gets very practical. When our faith begins to falter, number one, we got to remember God's word. Where do you get that from, Pastor Mike? I just read it to you. <laughs> Two guys come, are you really the Messiah? Go tell John this. And what was this? Maybe you didn't know this, but Jesus just quoted from Isaiah chapter 35. Isaiah, an Old Testament prophet who lived 700 years before Christ, talked about when the Christ came. Some of the prophecies are about his second coming, but some of them are about his first coming. And so what Jesus was saying is he was quoting the word of God through these two guys to John. 
Here it is, Isaiah 35, five. Then the eyes, when Messiah comes, then the eyes of the blind shall be opened. Did Jesus do that, yes or no? Okay. And the ears of the deaf unstopped. Did Jesus do that, yes or no? And then the lame man will leap like a deer. Did Jesus heal lame men? Man, man? And the tongue of the mute sing for joy. We all know he did that as well. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. And so the Lord was basically saying to these guys, guys, tell John this. I'm doing exactly what Isaiah said the Messiah is supposed to do. Tell John this. Remember God's word. And I gotta believe and hope that John, who was the greatest prophet who ever lived, well, we know he knew Isaiah. He studied Isaiah his whole life. And so when these two guys shared the word of God, the light bulb went on and oh yeah, who else could cause blind people to see and deaf people to hear and lame people to walk? And I believe and hope that John the Baptist's faith was strengthened. Why? Because of the word of God. Paul said to the Romans in Romans 10, verse 17, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. The other day I was having my devotions and I got into a place in the Bible that was pretty hard to understand. And so what I did is I got my phone and I went to blueletterbible.org or maybe it's blueletterbible.com. I can't, I'll never remember. But I went to Blue Letter Bible and then I clicked on the chapter that I'm going through in my devotions and then I clicked on commentaries and I clicked on David Guzik. And what I did is I sat there on my couch and I read God's word and then I read David Guzik's explanation. And then I read God's word, next verse, and his explanation. The next verse, God's word, and his explanation. All of a sudden, I'm getting understanding and I actually felt fed that morning, spiritually. Here's why, because this book is manna from heaven. This book is spiritual food. This book is to our spirit like ham and eggs and juice and rye toast is to our bodies. And that's why, listen to this, this is why some people live by the motto, no Bible, no breakfast. I love that. Maybe that should be your motto. In other words, I'm not gonna feed my body until I've fed my spirit. Which means you're probably gonna have to get up a little earlier because if you sleep in, you're gonna be really hungry, right? But maybe try that this week. No Bible, no breakfast. The second thing we should do if our faith begins to falter is we gotta remember God's blessings. Now, ladies and gentlemen, listen to this. John was so focused on his problem, he forgot God's blessings. John was so focused on, man, oh man, I'm sitting in this prison, they're over there partying, but I'm suffering. And Jesus is not coming. He's so focused on his problem that he forgot God's blessings. What should John have done instead of having a pity party? He should have counted his blessings. What, what should he have done? He should have said, wait, wait, wait. I am not gonna dwell on those negative thoughts. God, I remember the fact that you called me to be the forerunner of the Messiah, and then you let me preach to thousands of people. 
to repent and prepare their hearts for Messiah. And then I remember I got to baptize so many people, my arm was hurting. And then I got to introduce Jesus to Israel. This is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. I'm not even worthy to undo his, the straps on his sandals. And then I got to baptize, I tried to talk him out to I was like, hey, you should be baptizing me. And, and, and the Christ said, you baptize me. And I, I baptized the Messiah. And when he came out of the water and water's dripping off him, I hear a voice from heaven. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And I look up and there's a dove coming down and landing. That's what John should have been doing in this prison, thinking about his blessings, counting his blessings. And ladies and gentlemen, this is what we should do too. And I'm talking to myself as well because when problems happen, I like to dwell on the problems. And you do too. And, and by the way, your flesh doesn't want to count your blessings. The devil sure doesn't want you to count your blessings. Everything inside of you is gonna fight because we like to just kind of sit in a dark corner and take our old sin nature and just say, oh, and coddle our sin nature. Be done with that. Count your blessings and name them one by one. And you'll be surprised at what the Lord has done. Those of you who grew up in Baptist Sunday school, you remember the song, it's in your head right now. Those of you who didn't are like, what is he talking about? And so the third thing we should do if our faith begins to falter is we gotta remember God's sovereignty. Is he sovereign, yes or no? Yeah. We don't act like it though. Paul said to the Romans in Romans 8, 28, and we know that how many things? All things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. Now I got a question for you. Does it say all things are good? No, very good. It says all things work together for good. And I love this verse because one of the reasons I love it is I can share my, one of my top three illustrations with you. I, I do this every two years, but it's my illustration on the chocolate cake. And so if you were to come over to my house today and we were to make a chocolate cake, we would go into the kitchen, we'd pull out a bowl, and we'd throw some things in that bowl like sugar and flour and cocoa powder and baking soda and baking powder and salt and eggs and milk and vegetable oil and vanilla extract. And we would mix that, all that stuff up and we'd stick it in the oven. Now I have a question for you. If we were to consume any of those individual ingredients, do you think it would taste good? No, have you ever tried to down a cup of flour? <laughs> right? Have you ever tasted baking soda? Somebody in first service said yes. I was like, what? <laughs> have, you ever, have you ever drank vanilla extract? Nastiness. But guess what? You put all those things together and you begin to mix it. Well, all things work together for good. You put it in the oven and the next thing you know, what do you have? You have the greatest dessert ever. In my opinion, especially if it's a double fudge chocolate cake with chocolate frosting. You guys getting hungry? We still got 15 more minutes in the sermon, so. Now listen to this. Think about the individual things that happen to you and I. 
And what you gotta do is you gotta be real. Listen, the church has enough hypocrites. The church has enough people putting on a face. I would love to pastor a church where people are just real. That would be such a wonderful thing, so refreshing. And so, listen, when individual people fail us, it's not good. When financial blessings don't come, it's not good. When a significant relationship ends, that's not good. When something we cherish is taken away, that's not good. When our health deteriorates, it's not good. When a loved one gets sick and dies, that's not good. Stop telling yourself it's good, it's not. Just be real. That stuff leaves a bad taste in our mouth like vanilla extract. But how many of you guys believe God is sovereign? And so if you really, listen, if you really believe that he's in control, then you gotta believe that he's taking all the stuff in our lives, the good stuff and the bad stuff, and he's mixing it all together. And then he puts us in an oven. It's called trials. And he turns the heat up. And we're like, Lord, it's getting hot. Please stop. And he says, I love you. I know how much you can take. And the next thing you know, what comes out of the oven of life? A man or a woman conformed to the image of Christ. That's our goal. Our goal is not to get whatever we want and suck our thumb spiritually. Our goal is to be made like Jesus Christ for the glory of God. And the only way that happens is if we suffer and if God turns up the heat and he takes all that stuff and mixes it up. And so don't have a pity party. Don't be like John the Baptist. Submit to the sovereignty of God. And the fourth thing we gotta do if our faith falters is we gotta remember God's promise. His promise of what? Heaven, remember that place? Jesus told his troubled disciples, and you and I aren't the only ones that have problems. People have been having problems since Adam and Eve got together and had Cain. Okay, it's part of living in a fallen world. And the disciples were upset and they were having trouble and he's, Jesus says to them, and I believe he wants to say this to some of you right now, let not your hearts be troubled. Do you believe in God? Believe also in me, in my Father's house. There are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I'm going to prepare a place for you and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am, there you may be also, John 1, one through three. And so this world is not our home. We're just passing through. As the old song says, our treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. That's another old Baptist Sunday school song. You guys will catch up later. But anyway, heaven is our home. Heaven's our home. This is not our home. And so when life hurts, don't be like Lot's wife. Oh, the world, right? Be like Abraham who look forward to a city whose designer and builder is God's. And when we get there, listen, a billion years we're gonna hang out together. I can't wait to hang out with you guys. Because honestly, you can ask my wife, I'm a really busy guy. And so I know a lot of you guys, you, know, you wanna get to know me better, and I'm just so busy as the church grows. But you know what, when we get home, we got billions of years to hang out with all of us in our glorified bodies. And I'll go check out your pad. You can come check out my pad. And it's gonna be awesome. 
Stop thinking so much about this life. Now we gotta finish the story, right? Just three more minutes, hang with me to the end. Please go back to Mark chapter six. And so in verse 21, Herodias finally gets her opportunity for revenge. Verse 21 of Mark six, but an opportunity came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. And when Herodias's daughter, we don't know this from the Bible, we know from secular history, her name is Salome. And so when Herodias's daughter came in into the party and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, by the way, she's most likely a teenager right now. And the king said to the girl, ask me whatever you wish and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half my kingdom. And so Herod's got a party going on. Salome comes in, she dances, and everybody's like, yeah. Except it was perverted. John MacArthur, as I read his commentary this week, said that this dance contained, quote, highly suggestive hand and body movements comparable to a modern day striptease. And when it says that the dance pleased Herod and his dignitaries, MacArthur believes the word please is a euphemism for sexual arousal. What does that mean? That means you got Herod Antipas, who by the way, right now around 32 AD, he's in his early 50s and he's being turned on by a teenager. You know what I call that? Perverted. And by the way, it's perverted at any age to get involved in lewd dancing. And plus the guys are all drinking. And so when he's drinking, he's drunk, he makes this rash promise he's gonna regret forever. He says, Salome, come here. You can have half my kingdom, whatever you want. What do you wanna do? And she doesn't know what to do, so she runs to mama for advice. And Herodias knows exactly what she wants to do. Look at verse 24. And she, Salome, went out and said to her mother, for what should I ask? And she said, the head of John the Baptist. <laughs> And so Salome came in immediately with haste to king, the king and asked saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry. Remember he respected John. But because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. And he went and he beheaded him in prison. Can you put yourself in John's sandals? He's sitting in the dungeon. He hears the music stop. He hears the footsteps coming down the corridor. He hears the keys jingling. He looks up. He sees this big dude with an ax. He knows it's the end. He executes John the Baptist, and it says in verse 28 that he brought his head on a platter and gave it to Salome, and she gave it to her mother. And the disciples heard it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. Michelangelo painted this scene from our story. Herodias finally got what she wanted, sweet revenge. 
But I have to ask myself, was it sweet? Listen, revenge, maybe you hate somebody and you wanna have revenge and you do something nasty to them, you'll never get peace from that, never. Just forgive them from your heart. You see, if she felt any pleasure, the pleasure didn't last long. Herod and Herodias, they didn't end well. Here's your last point. It's a quote from David Guzik. Herod had a terrible end. In order to take his brother's wife, Herodias, Herod put away his first wife, I already talked about this, a princess from a neighboring kingdom to the east. Her father, this is the woman he divorced, her father was offended and came against Herod with an army and defeated him in battle. Then his brother Agrippa accused him of treason against Rome and he was banished into the distant Roman province of Gaul. In Gaul, Herod and Herodias committed suicide. Be not deceived, God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, he will also reap. It didn't end well for Herod and Herodias, but it ended very well for John the Baptist. You say, whoa, they killed him, what do you mean? Listen, they killed his body, they didn't kill his soul. As soon as that ax came down on the back of his neck, just like Luke 16, when the angels came for Lazarus, the angels came into the Machiris Fortress dungeon and they led the spirit, the soul, the real John the Baptist to paradise because absent from the body means to be present with the Lord. One of the greatest gifts God can give his children is the assurance of their salvation. If you're not sure where you stand with God, we wanna help. Visit our website at calvarypsl.com. Click on, I'm new here, then knowing Christ.